Welcome to Old Fashioned Finance, the podcast that mixes cocktails and high finance. I'm your host, Jason Demland, and I am joined as always and in the future by my good friend and fellow money muddler, Caleb Frankert. Jason, can a podcast about finance be entertaining? Not without alcohol. Well, all right, let's mix it up. (laughs) Howdy, Caleb. How are you doing today, my friend? Howdy, Jason. Doing well? And yourself? Good. We say howdy now. <laughs> Today, so, that's it's good. new, starting yeah. now. <laughs> I'm feeling great. I'm yeah. feeling wonderful. We're recording this on a Monday, and I do not have a case of the Mondays. No, it's it's kind of nice looking forward to Mondays, actually, because I really look forward to podcast day. Yeah, and that's what it is. So we're going to lay down a thick and heavy podcast. We're going to lay down today. some tasty licks. <laughs> Rock and roll. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. So uh, you were on vacation last week. How was it? Yeah, I was. It was great. I took the fam to Hocking Hills, which is a place. Enough of that. Let's get into the drink. <laughs> National Parks uh, in southeastern Ohio, in the hilly part of Ohio. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess all of the eastern part of the state is a lot more hilly than the western part. Did you stumble on any moonshine stills while you were there? No. It's the kind of place where you don't want to do that, I think. <laughs> But it's the kind of place that you would stumble on. Absolutely. One. It's it's got to be the moonshine headquarters of Ohio. Definitely uh, and, Ohio. Uh, but no, I didn't wander off any of the government property. Well, I guess even on government property, a, a yeah, clever moonshine. That's a great place to hide it. <laughs> stuck one there. Right under their nose. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see any of that. There were, some, there were some distilleries and there are a lot of moonshiners down that area. But no, we just stayed to hiking the trails, seeing the sites, the rock formations. There's like a gorge. There's a lot of things called caves, but they're not actually caves. Okay. They're just rocks that got cut out by water. And they're pretty cool. They're pretty amazing, especially when you're a flatlander like like you and I. Yeah. It's pretty impressive. I have never been to Hocking Hills, which is embarrassing because I've been an Ohio resident my entire life and everybody goes to Hocking Hills. I would like to do that sometime soon. So maybe I'll have you help me book a trip, you know? Yeah. Get on the Hit Airbnb. <laughs> We got a cabin and it was really, it was like a fancy cabin. Yeah. Uh, and since we were only there for a couple nights, we like upgraded a little more than we would have normally. So it had a had a pool table mm. and my kids invented a game on it, uh, which was distressing. Rip me. the felt. Yeah. Because they were like, <laughs> one time I went down there and they're like, look at this stage we have. And they're oh, all on no. top of it. I was like, get off of that. And uh, But they invented a game called Poka because you poke the sticks or poke, <laughs> poke the balls with sticks. Oh, okay. Um, but they were just dragging the pool cues right oh, over the phone. Oh, that's but uh, my wife and I, my wife and I played a couple games of pool, and I am almost as bad at pool as I am at golf, <laughs> and she beat me a couple of times. Yeah, I heard. Yeah. She made sure to tell me multiple times. <laughs> She's very proud. I'm glad. I'm glad for, her. and I'm glad for your humility. Yes, I, my <laughs> humiliation. <laughs> so uh, today is. Uh, well, I look forward to every podcast, but I really especially look forward to these uh, every fourth episode, which is this one is a Manhattan Project. It's time for the Manhattan Project. Yeah. Investments are not rocket science. We're going to talk about uh, something that gets really muddied up and people get into the weeds. It's not rocket science. We're going to talk about rolling over 401ks today, when it's a good idea, when maybe it's not a great idea. And hopefully we'll make it really clear and simple, as is the theme of these Manhattan Project podcasts. To, breaking it down. Yeah, break it down. Making and, it not rocket science. And 
I, I gotta say, I really love drinking Manhattans and different variations of Manhattans when we do this. And today on the docket, we've got uh, the Rob Roy. Rob Roy. What do you know about Rob Roy? I don't know anything about Rob Roy other than there was a musical named after him. Okay. Um, in the late 1800s, right about at the turn of the century. Yeah, I think it was a full-blown opera, actually. An opera. Yeah. That's right. That's what I read. An opera. There was a movie in the early 90s, maybe, called Rob Roy. And I don't know. I'm probably wrong on this. I thought Liam Neeson was the was was Rob Roy in that movie. If it was made in the 90s and John McTiernan didn't direct it, I didn't see it. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> so Rob Roy was kind of a, a Scottish... Robin Hood, if you will. Okay. Uh, a scalawag <laughs> in the 1600s. On this side of history, he's revered and, and looked kindly upon by, by Scottish tradition. Like the William Wallace. Yeah. Of, but Robin Hood. But Robin Hood style. Yeah. There. Now I know two the, the lovable, The lovable ne'er-do-well. All right. <laughs> Interesting. Why is this drink called the Rob Roy? Well, I would say that the biggest difference between this drink and other Manhattans is... No rye, scotch. Yeah, this scotch, it's got scotch. <laughs> it's so a little it bit Scottish. Sense. It's yeah. the Scottish Manhattan. Exactly. That's the whole deal. That's it. Well, you did some research on the history. Why don't we dive right in, Jason? Yeah, let's jump into some history. Well, at the core, it's important to note that this is a Manhattan made with scotch. That's what makes a Rob Roy a Rob Roy. That makes sense if Rob Roy is a famous Scottish person mm -hmm. or character or myth or whatever he is. That makes sense that you would name it that, I suppose, because it's Scottish. Sure. I guess you could have named it a Scottish city. I guess. Instead of a, Some Manhattan. of those are hard to say, though. Go. Le Glasgow. Lafroy. You can't just name Scotches. <laughs> well, it's based off of, isn't that? It's a, it's, no, it's I think a you're city. right. I think you're right. I it don't is. know. Uh, Lagavulin. <laughs> is Edinburgh Scot Scotland or is that Ireland? Definitely. Uh, will, oh, yeah, wait a minute. Bending people. <sighs> I do not know geography good enough. To <laughs> let's do stop this. right there with the, the geography lesson. <laughs> let's, yeah, let's go into some history. I did a little research, Caleb. Okay. And I found fun stuff. Uh, I consulted David Wondrich, who is my favorite cocktail historian. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, had, he had a little blurb in his book, Imbibe. Great book. Uh, two pages on the Rob Roy, which is great. And then he uh, he also had a, several other articles that he's written for like the Daily Beast and for uh, Esquire. I found this out. There's an Imbibe magazine as well. Mm. There's a podcast by Imbibe magazine, and it was a, a different uh, a different host whenever I uh, listened to an episode. But it is the same Imbibe that uh, Wondrich uh, is involved with. So if you're listening to podcasts out there, if you like the drink part of this show, yeah, if that's your favorite finance, part, <laughs> check out the Imbibe podcast. We said at the beginning, there are way better podcasts about cocktails than ours. And if this podcast is way too long for you, by the way, <laughs> which it might be, the uh, cocktails podcast Imbibe is like 18 to 25 minutes usually. Ah, So if you just want the booze. And that's it. Just go to the booze podcast. However, if you like the shenanigans and the finance, stick around, folks. This and is if a you good like one. regular Joes enjoying this, these fancy cocktails instead of highly educated, aristocratic cocktail snobs. Yeah. We're, I presume we're the, they are. We're the podcast for you then. All right. History time. 
David Wondrich writes uh, in well in one article actually he goes way in depth about how he was tracking down the history of this cocktail and how incredibly difficult it was for him before the internet was ex- in existence mm-hmm. or at least uh, before Al Gore prevalent yes before Al Gore invented the internet lockbox <laughs> <laughs> before Al Gore invented the internet and Google hadn't come to prominence so like 1996 David Wondrich was was searching for the source of the Rob Roy and he's like now like almost like 20 something years later it's a lot easier but mm-hmm. you end up with the same result so he he scoured and he always has scoured this he's a cocktail historian just so you know though you and I used the same internet both the, the same internet invented by Al Gore and I found something different oh well, that's great I usually just cling to David Wondrich because he's such thought. a pleasure to read. <laughs> yeah, he's and great. And if we have differing, if we have differing histories, it will be super fun. Um, but Wondrich basically said the first he he saw, he found the first recorded mention of the Rob Roy in 1873. It was in the New York Sun. There was an article about American fancy drinks. Hmm. It was called the Rob Roy cocktail, and it was attributed to this E. F. Barry bartender, but it didn't have scotch in it. Interesting. It was. It was. Why would they call it the Rob Roy? It was an old was no fashioned. Scotch. It was an old fashioned whiskey, brandy, and gin with sugar, Angostura bitters. Except it had orgeat, which is we talked about that. I think on a. It's like an almond yeah, syrup. Yeah, almond something. liqueur yeah. really is what it is, or syrupy. Is it alcoholic? I don't know. I no, it's just I don't, almond syrup. No, I think it's used in, in yeah, you're other right. forms of Asian style cooking and yes. things like Korean cookbooks. I see it in there, you know, yeah. orgeet. So syrup it's an old or, fashioned with orgeet. Yeah. Okay. Um, so he's like, that's not really what we've got now. And the next reference he had was 1882. Uh, Chicago, though, this time. So we're off the East Coast. We're in the Midwest. Still no scotch. And it was probably the same recipe. And by the way, scotch didn't really get famous in the United States until the 1890s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it really like Americans got really into scotch, Scottish stuff. Mm-hmm. So the real Rob Roy, or presumably, according to my sources, uh, appeared in 1895 in the San, Fran- in San Francisco, the San Francisco Call. And it's, it was described as such. And a new cocktail called the Rob Roy is a Manhattan made with scotch instead of rye whiskey. It is excellent. The article references an unknown New York paper, too. And the next new references that come up are from New York. One's just a joke. The other one is an announcement of two new drinks from the New York City Fifth Avenue Hotel Bar. There was a musical released, an opera released called Rob Roy uh-huh. in 1894, uh, done by Reginald de Coven. Um, that's probably where the name came from because <laughs> that was popular at that time. But wait, there's more. While Wondrous was researching something else, randomly, uh, he fell upon a column that was responding to a Hungarian who wrote into the editor, and he was reminiscing about Hotel Hungaria, where his brother worked. And he thought, well, while I'm talking about my brother, I might as well say that also around 1895, he invented the Rob Roy cocktail while working at Duke's house in Hoboken, New Jersey. So Hoboken, huh? Yeah. Wondrous sleuthed it up, and he found some corroborating evidence that said this guy was bartending in New Jersey at that time. Henry A. Orful. Fred was his brother who wrote into the editor. He, he looked that up and, and basically at the end, one was like, is this the true origin of the Rob Roy? Maybe, maybe not. So but did, it's important to know that it's just a Scotch Manhattan. Did, all right. So uh, this guy, the Hungarian guy, claimed to use, use Scotch, whereas the other two earlier mentions didn't have Scotch. That's why I find it a little bit hard to believe that those were the early iterations of this drink because... Why would you call it a Rob Roy? I have no idea. Well, maybe because it's like calling something the Robin Hood, but it has nothing to do with England or, you know, that kind of thing. 
the whole Rob Roy story, I mean, that became popular here in the States with that opera or musical that came around in 1894, 5, 6, wherever. So I have a little bit different history. It's not not wildly different, but I dug really, really deep to find this. It was on Wikipedia. (laughs) Was that on the second page of the Google search results? (laughs) I was pressed for time. Uh, It says it was created in 1894 by a bartender at the Waldorf Astorian, Manhattan, New York City. Okay, so that would make sense. The Manhattan was wildly popular. Um, This was a new hotel, the Waldorf Astoria. Um, Is is that the same hotel that uh, Kevin McAllister stayed at? I don't know. He Trump was at whatever <laughs> he hotel was. Kevin yeah. McAllister stayed at. I think it might be. It wasn't the Ritz. Mm, I don't know. Oh, it might be the Ritz. It was there a big the R on the building? Maybe I don't, I don't remember. Mm. I just assumed Ritz, but Waldorf Astoria is a wonderfully upscale hotel. I Though I've a- had <laughs> having stayed at both hotel chains oh. myself. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> I can say the service at the Ritz that I went to was was better. Well, my source, Wikipedia, <laughs> says the drink was named in honor of uh, the premiere of Rob Roy, an operetta by Reginald DeCoven. Th- that would make sense in that time frame, why that would be so popular. The Waldorf opening in Manhattan, you know, why it would be a twist on the really wildly popular Manhattan at that time. That's really the the deviation there. I don't know about those earlier iterations, mostly because this is what I searched, so I feel like it's right. Oh, those <laughs> earlier ones, I think Wondrich writes them off too. He's like, this is not, this is just a happenstance. Now, the Hungarian guy, he might have a case. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> but if maybe if David Wondrich, and if you're listening, Mr. Wondrich, check Wikipedia out. They have different information <laughs> than you. Yeah, and you don't have to do all the sleuthing that you did, man. That's just... It's just out there on the Google. <laughs> like the Manhattan, the Rob Roy uh, can be made sweet or basically just the Rob Roy using sweet vermouth. Dry or perfect like any other Manhattan. Today's recipe, uh, the one that I pulled up, and I think we're going to have time to do two recipes here maybe because we'll make Wondrich time. had some uh, interesting takes on it, I think, what, what he believes to be the original. Mm-hmm. So we got to try that. But what we're drinking here today is comprised of two ounces of scotch I used uh, Glenlivet 15-year, which is a nice scotch. That's a fancy one. We tried this drink, you and I, months and months ago using just some well scotch, and it was awful, quite frankly. Do you remember what kind of vermouth we used when we tried that? Maybe we used a... Did we use Gallo? Oh, it could be. We might have used... We used basically bottom of the barrel scotch and vermouth we I used think, to make well, a rock yeah away. well ingredients and it wasn't good no, um so i not. really think that in this uh I, I, the liquor of choice the uh the spirit always makes a difference yeah, but absolutely. in this case uh, case when we're talking about scotch i i think it really makes a difference so this 15 year old glenlivet tastes pretty good i digress two ounces of scotch one ounce of sweet vermouth we used kochi here uh so again a, a Really good uh, vermouth. Mm -hmm. Two dashes of Angostura bitters and uh, a maraschino cherry uh, for the garnish. Just combine the ingredients in a mixing glass like you would a normal Manhattan. Uh, Stir and strain. Garnish with your cherries and away you go. Uh, What do you think, Jason? What are your impressions of this drink? So I hated the original Rob Roy that we made. Yeah. I was very disappointed because it seemed cool and I liked Manhattans. Uh, However, this one that we made, I do not hate. I kind of like it. I still prefer a Manhattan. I like the way the rye tastes better. It's more complicated. Yeah. It's hotter. 
This scotch spicy must make yeah. This scotch must make a difference. You know, the better a scotch is, people are always like, "Ooh, that's really smooth." Yeah, they're not like, "Ooh, they." It's not like as complicated with rye whiskey or, or bourbon even, mm-hmm. where you're you're talking about the heat adding to the flavor profile. So I like it. I prefer a Manhattan made with rye whiskey, but this is pretty good. And I could see how the the scotch that you use really makes a big difference. Yeah, years ago, you and I both were really into scotch. And, uh, you know, I've tried, I, I, honestly, the, the thing with scotch is the, the entry point is kind of high. Yeah. Um, in my opinion, you got to get like a 10 or a 12 year scotch, uh, before you're even dealing with a decent scotch. And, um, uh, you know, you're looking at 40 or 50 bucks a bottle generally there. Mm-hmm. Um, now I will say every time you step up 15, 18, 21 year, um, it gets a lot better. Um, the Glenlivet 21 is the best scotch I've ever had in my life. I really wonder what it would taste like in this, but um, it would be a pretty pricey experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, I like this. I do prefer, uh, like you said, rye, even a bourbon Manhattan. Um, I don't know. Something just when it comes to Manhattans, all roads lead back to Kentucky. <laughs> I, think, I think it makes sense. Um, so Wondrich, uh, good drink, but Wondrich has, uh, maybe a different opinion on what the original Rob Roy looked like. Do you have that, Jason? Yeah, I've got that. And it's really very similar. Uh, scotch obviously is the main ingredient. However, he was, he, he thinks originally like this Duke's house recipe was equal parts scotch and vermouth. So like Mm. one and a half ounces scotch, one and a half ounces sweet vermouth he did say that he found recipes that included dry vermouth that were old, but yeah. he hates the way that tastes, so he just chose to ignore them and oh, use okay. this. Um, so, but but also, there were sweet vermouth recipes, too. Yeah, dry vermouth. There were sweet vermouth. Yeah, he didn't just change it. There oh, were okay, sweet vermouth okay. recipes. Yeah, you're right. But instead of Angostura bitters or just any other like regular bitters, he, he they used orange bitters. Okay. So we might have to try something like that at some point. Uh, let's hit pause and go try that now. And we're back. We are back. That was fast, Jason. Yes, we tried that recipe out, and it's it's also good. What do you think? I like it. Obviously, more sweet vermouth. It's sweeter. I, you know, my unrefined palate doesn't pick up the orange bitters as much. I guess my thoughts on this one are if I'm going to be, you know, overly sweet vermouth, I like a vermouth like Kochi. Um, That's probably, as far as the sweetness, that's that's maybe my favorite. Yeah, it is a lot sweeter, more desserty, mm-hmm. but uh, it's still got that dryness from the scotch, like yeah. th- that just little bit of peatiness. Yeah, balancing it out somewhat. I, I think the lesson to be taken away from this is any way you mix it up, don't skimp on the scotch if you're going to make this drink. This is not going to taste good if you throw Cuddy Sark in there. It's just not. Yeah, I, I really get, doubt get it. Get something that starts with Glenn and you'll be all right. <laughs> Glenn Fittick, Glenn Levitt, Glenn Meringue. You know, Dewar's is who really... Uh, Started marketing this in the early 1900s when I was reading. You know what? Dewar's is an admirable replacement. It's usually a little, little bit cheaper. I wouldn't go below Dewar's, though. <laughs> or Dewar's. I hear some people say Dewar's. Oh, you know what? It's prob- I, I've heard Dewar's, too. I, think I, I like Dewar's better. I like a dummy. <laughs> hey, we I have a finance topic today. I don't know much about pronouncing names of scotch companies, but I do know much about... Much? I do know much. You do know much, and I also know much about 401ks and rolling them over. So let's move on to our finance topic, which is about 
Rollering over your 401k? Rob Roy's and rolling over 401ks. All right, Jason. So we're going to talk about rolling over 401ks, but this should not be viewed as specific to only 401ks, 403bs, 457s, uh, employer-sponsored mm-hmm. plans for the most part. Uh, any advice or thoughts given to the 401k should probably be applied uh, to those other plans as well. So why don't we do this uh, the Ben Franklin way, as you said one time, uh, and we're going to do a pros and cons list. What are the pros to rolling over your 401k? What are the cons? When should you and when shouldn't you? Is that fair? Does that sound good? I think that's a good way to go about it. Why not? Uh, That's the way we decided to go about it. So that's what we're going to do. If we do it another way, then we're going to have to start over. (laughs) So the pros... Uh, the reasons in favor of rolling over a 401k or 403b or 457 yeah, and the rest. And other stuff. The number one reason and the most often cited according to the Investment Company Institute study called The Role of IRAs in U.S. Households Saving for Retirement 2018. Ah, the role, R-O-L-E, not R-O-L-L. Yeah. <laughs> the role of, yeah, okay. See how that would be funny? No. 64% of people uh, cited having more investment options as a reason to roll over from their 401k. So that's our first point. Our first pro is that you have more investment options and more control of an IRA than you do of your 401k. How can that be? Well, Jason, you and I have both seen uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of 401k plans or work retirement plans, employee-sponsored plans. Some are lacking at best. Some are quite robust. However, uh, in an IRA, in some cases, depending on who you're working with, the options are, dare I say, unlimited. That really does depend on who you're working with. Now, we have seen 401ks and 403bs and 457s that may have a good amount of options. Mm-hmm. Usually they're limited because an em- when an employer of yours is sponsoring a plan, they have to cover their own behinds mm-hmm. and they don't want to give you the whole world to invest in so you can overload in one tiny sector fund. You want to be in small cap industrial Bitcoin, <laughs> something like that. Uh, so usually they limit your options to only having a few options in each sector or each each area of investing. Yeah. But sometimes they have uh, a link, a linked account, and Fidelity calls it brokerage link. Yeah, like uh, a self-directed. T- yeah, there's a self-directed option maybe. So you can put a portion of your retirement funds in that, and then you, you might have whatever Schwab or TD Ameritrade or Fidelity has available to you, and there might be increased cost to that, and, then, but you, and you can go into that. And on the other hand, some people... The left hand, by the way. The left hand. So, some people offer an IRA with also limited options. And I'm thinking of some of our, our largest broker dealers have a very limited menu. Yeah, so, a menu is a good way to put a it. A menu. Like yeah. when you're selecting, like, I would like a growth fund for my money. Right. And here's four like, growth funds that we can use with this mutual fund company. Right. That and you're we, like, wow, you guys are a trillions of dollar company and you only are allowing me four different fund families. Like mm-hmm. maybe it's, uh, for example, like American funds or Lord Abbott or Franklin, instead of having the whole palette open to you and your yeah. advisor helping you choose those. So my point is, this is a pro. Generally, 
you have more options when you roll over to an IRA than you do with an employer-sponsored plan. It's not always true, and you do have to watch out for for some some IRAs. But for example, if you have an employer-sponsored plan with Fidelity, mm-hmm. say like through General Motors or some company, a big company, you've got limited options. I know from seeing their plans, but you do have a self-directed option. Yeah, and roll- and like we said, even the most robust plans are still limited yeah. because that company has an obligation, a fiduciary obligation to limit that menu uh, in some regards. Uh, so for example, you, you can't use uh, physical gold or silver or a house in an IRA or oh, um, yeah. you art. Know, art or you know paintings or baseball cards or collectible that you technically can hold in IRAs, mm-hmm. technically. Not saying that we would encourage that or that we'd do that here, but the fact is that in an IRA, that's just the tax qualification of an account. Your options are really limitless. Um, yeah, absolutely. From that point of view, especially... Yeah, an IRA is a lot less constrictive hindrances. <laughs> it's got a lot, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on, right? There's 40 some thousand mutual funds and ETFs out there, something like that. There's probably more than that, but that's what it was a few years ago, I thought. Um, you certainly don't have that many mm-hmm. options in your 401k. Who's going to sift through that many uh, options in their 401k, by the way? You might have 100 options, and I'd say that's a pretty robust plan quite frankly. Oh yeah, comparatively speaking. I yeah. haven't seen any of that have that many options. No. So that that's in my opinion that's kind of the obvious one that you've just got a lot more options and uh, more options equals more control over your assets. Wouldn't yeah. you say? Yeah, definitely. I, I think that it's sometimes it's more dangerous and usually the employer is trying to reduce risk by not giving you as many options for investments. They're trying to they're covering their own behinds cuz because of the ERISA rules. Mm-hmm employers are responsible for your investments. That's why they now have qualified default investment arrangements. What's the A stand for in QDIA? Do you remember? Arrangement sounds right. Whatever. Uh, accounts? <laughs> they have qualified default ones. That's why you'll fall into a retirement date based on your age Target account. Funds, sure. and, uh, but when you move to an IRA, uh, and like the stuff that you said, Caleb, you, you got the true unrestricted access to using real estate and collectibles and that sort of thing in your IRA, as well as really you have the control over any fund that you want to invest in or stock at that point too. So you could put Bitcoin in it, even if your company plan doesn't allow it. Yeah. If you open your own any IRA. digital currency. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's kind of the obvious one. Um, I, I think the next one, and I, I wrote this one down, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people don't think about this because it might not mm-hmm. be real well advertised. But when you're working for a company, um, one of your benefits might be a 401k or a 403b or 457, whatever your work retirement plan happens to be. And that that's a benefit as an employee. A lot of administrative expenses that go along with servicing and managing that account uh, are included in, in the whole package. But a sneaky little secret that not a lot of folks know about is sometimes when you sever employment, that deal goes away and uh, people might start to see these administrative fees being billed from their account. Jason, have you seen that in the past? Yeah. Uh, typically, the company will pay for most of those costs. And and uh, one of the benefits of having a 401k is that your your cost of having these investments managed or, or whatever uh, is a lot lower. And sometimes when you don't work there anymore, those fees can go up. Sometimes when you're working there, those fees are a lot higher than you realize too. It really depends on how the company has structured the plan with the third party administrator and the record keeper who's charging what. There could be high expense ratios on the funds that they have 
they have listed for you too that you don't really necessarily see. Uh, so I think I think rolling over from a 401k to an IRA can be a savings of fees. It can be. And I'll go back to the control thing. At least you're going to be able to control the fees. Yes, you're in charge. We've all seen this uh, where a company decides to change their retirement plan. And Jason, we know in, in this day and age that when companies make plans, usually the benefits aren't, aren't getting better. You know, you look at health insurance, you, all of the above. A lot, you know, we hear about, um, you know, retirement matches going lower and things like that, dropping, whatever. Um, a lot of times when a company switches from one 401k provider to the next, it's about a cost savings to the company. Uh, and it may result in higher fees with the, the next provider, uh, or l- a limited menu, if you will, of options. So these are things you got to be careful of whenever your company, uh, makes a, a, a plan change. Now, this is kind of an aside, but most of the time when there is a plan change, there is an opportunity to get out uh, because you have, I mean, you have the opportunity to do what's right for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will typically give you an opportunity or a, a window to roll funds out and do you know what you'd like with those funds. And I, I've seen that uh, with a few local companies here uh, where maybe they change from one provider to the next and you know, it looked like we were going from a pretty decent plan to a not so great plan with a limited menu. And, you know, we elected to roll funds out of there. Um, so I, I guess again, an aside, but if your company is going through a change, typically we're not used to our, our benefits, um, getting better this day and age, mm-hmm. they're usually being minimized in some capacity. So, uh, if, if there is some kind of a program change, keep an eye out for that. Um, it could be higher administrative fees that the employee is not picking up anymore. It could be a limited menu of investment options. Um, it, it could be a lot of things, but, um, that's where I'd, I'd say consult with a competent financial advisor. You and I, in our job, we see these expenses. We're a lot better at hunting them out than well. They don't the advertise them. Very no, well. you've got to you've got to look. You've got to know what to look for. So I I do think it is helpful. We've got some experience and some expertise in actually seeing how much things cost. We can help, but it it does take a little sleuthing to figure that out. Definitely. Um, the next one, Jason, that I have uh, written down here is well quite simple. <laughs> you can't convert your 401k to a Roth if that's part of your financial plan. Uh, if you leave an employer and you have the opportunity to roll your 401k, whatever, 403b, 457, you've got the opportunity for Roths, uh, Roth conversions, which we've talked about in previous episodes. That could be big tax savings over the long haul, uh, right? So there's another opportunity, the ability to do Roth conversions, right? Absolutely. That's going to probably be its own episode if we keep running this show. Doing Roth conversions is one of the most valuable things we do for our clients, just from a tax perspective. But it's really complicated. But you can't do it inside your 401k. Right. So, And and the principle of it, in a nutshell, is taking traditional money that's Mm pre-taxed. You haven't paid any taxes on it yet. Paying the taxes and converting it to a Roth so that it grows tax-free. And then you can take the money out tax-free. Right. The idea is settle up now mm-hmm. when tax rates are historically low. And while you can control the exact amount. Exactly. And the idea there is from that point, from conversion point on, you'll never pay taxes on the growth again. So, mm-hmm. you know, for someone who's 35 years old and, you know, you look at maybe um, a market pullback or let's say a dip in income or something like that, that may provide a good opportunity for a Roth conversion and say, hey, I'm probably never going to be, and this is where I come down, probably never going to be in a lower tax bracket than I am now just because of the way that things are heading. Uh, That may be an opportunity to say, hey, Uncle Sam, let's make a deal. I'll settle up now. You never tax me on these funds again. Yeah. 
There's one caveat to this though, Caleb, and is that that is if you have a 401k that's got really liberal withdrawal rules to it, uh-huh. and you can make after-tax contributions to the 401k, it could be an awesome asset in doing what's called the mega Roth conversion, yeah. um, but that's a lot more rare. I know you're a huge fan. Uh, we talk about that a lot. The mega Roth is a huge game changer, um, probably not applicable to most right. folks, yeah. but... Um, that's one of those, I'll go back to one of our other episodes. That's one of the tools in our Batman utility retirement tool belt, <laughs> um, that you want to hang on to, uh, if, if the situation applies. Right. The option for Roth conversions is huge when we do tax planning for folks here. That's one of the big things that we're looking at because, and this is completely opinion, but, and I've said this in an episode before, it's not a commentary on my income. It's a commentary on taxes in general and where I think they're going. And, if you pulled 100 people out on the street today, I think 90% would tell you that taxes are probably going up, not down, wouldn't you Wouldn't you say? So if that's the yeah. case, settle up now and uh, you know take advantage of all the tax-free because it's free growth at that point with a Roth. Mm-hmm. You know, Down the road, the younger you are, the more benefit that could be. So that's a huge one is if Roth conversions are part of your financial plan, well, heck, you can't do that in a 401k. Uh, you probably want to roll it out into an IRA to accomplish that. So mm-hmm. um, there's some other things to talk about, though, as far as distributions, because that that's kind of looked at as a distribution. In a 401k, Jason, if you were going to, let's say you retired from your employer, you uh, decide to keep your, your money in your 401k and you need to take a withdrawal, what's going to happen? Um, I'm going to have to pay taxes. Sure. You're, of course, you're going to have to pay taxes on that pre-tax money, but there's a mandatory tax withholding rate, right? Mm-hmm. 20%, 20%. So what if, uh, what if I know my tax situation really well and, uh, I don't want to hold 20% from my withdrawals. You know, if you, if you need a thousand dollars and they're going to hold 20%, you got to take out more than a thousand dollars to net that number that you're looking for. So, um, that's one of the inflexibilities of a 401k, those mandatory 20% tax withholdings, right? Got it. So no matter what, when you take money out of a 401k, you're going to have a 20% minimum withholding. And with an IRA, you get to decide if it's zero or 40. Yeah. Oftentimes we, we uh, send out IRA distributions to folks and we're not withholding any taxes because they've got a good handle on their tax situation. Mm-hmm. So why would you take that extra 20% out when it's working for you, tax deferred, when you could be flexible with your uh, tax withholdings? Exactly. Um, as far as different rules on distributions go, there's another one that I think is really important too. Uh, and that's beneficiary options. Yeah. So if you held your 401k, you retire and you keep it with your company, let's say you pass on and your spouse inherits your IRA. Uh, well, with an IRA, they get to inherit that as if it were their own, right? So I can think of a situation specifically where I had a client who was uh, six years younger than her husband. He passed away with a 401k and, and we were able to get things in her name if we needed to, but because he was set to take required minimum distributions, they were going to they were going to keep that RMD schedule regardless of whether she needed to or not. So the alternative was, well, we roll it to an IRA. We let the money continue to grow for six years. She doesn't have to take out those distributions. So there is that. And actually, in some cases, I've seen where the required minimum di- distribution, when someone passes away and we're looking at a beneficiary situation... That company is looking to clean that thing out as quickly as possible. So you may have to take out more than than what your typical RMD would be for an IRA. Yeah. So in a nutshell, it's easier, better to inherit an IRA than a 401k. Yes. 
from a control aspect, right? Yeah. So a lot of this comes down to your control over the assets. Well, which is a tax issue as, as well. Then you want to control the tax spigot on your distributions. And it's a lot harder to do that on a 401k with an inherited 401k. Absolutely. Interesting. Absolutely. I think that number five on our list here is kind of an obvious one. And you did a little bit of research as far as the numbers, Jason, but consolidation, how important is consolidation? To me personally, this has been the the drum that I've beat when I'm talking to people about getting their retirement accounts in order. A lot of times people change jobs mm-hmm. um, and it's become a lot more common now. I, I can't remember the stats. I seem to remember that the average person changes at least seven times over their career. That was a few years ago. That was a while ago. (laughs) I have to imagine it's more. I don't have a citation for that. But I do have a statistic from the Investment Company Institute study that we referred to earlier. Mm -hmm. The role of IRAs in U.S. households saving for retirement 2018. R-O-L-E role. And uh, (laughs) it it said that when of people that moved from a 401k to an IRA, 54% of them indicated that consolidation was a key reason for doing that. It makes a lot of sense to get all of your money in one spot. Now, this we talked about diversification and what it isn't. Yeah, it's on not an episode. It's not all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> Putting all of your money into the same all of your pre-tax retirement savings money into the same IRA is not putting all of your eggs in one basket. If they're all in the same custodian, it's still not putting all your eggs in one basket. You're invested but, in multiple companies and multiple sectors right. and multiple countries and industries all over the world. And you probably have SIPC backing of the the accounts and you probably have errors and omissions insurance by your advisor and, and all of that jazz. So this is not not diversification, <laughs> but consolidation has a lot of pros to it in and of itself. And the biggest one is the simplicity yeah. of taking care of your account. When you come to that required minimum distribution age, it is a pain. And we know that because we're going through that. It's the end of the year here with our yeah. clients. Here we, we just, go. We're we ramping just, up for RMDs. We just talked about it forever about how we're going to make sure we don't miss anything with our clients on required mis- minimum distributions from their accounts. It is a lot easier when you just got one. And it's really important because if you screw that up and you don't take enough, oh my. Let's say you miss your required minimum distribution by $1000. You you took $1000 less than what you were supposed to. Your penalty on that withdrawal, A, you have to go back and and remedy the situation. Take that $1000 out and pay taxes on it. But yeah. because you missed it, the penalty is 50%. 50% to the IRS for missing it. Yeah. So, yeah, when you have things scattered all over the place, doing these calculations for your required minimum distribution gets more complicated. And the likelihood of making a big mistake to the tune of 50%, that is a big deal. We've all seen it happen. Yeah. I'm going to go somewhere maybe even a little bit more obvious, Jason, and I've seen this uh, over the years. We are so focused on accumulating assets, sometimes we forget about places that we've put money. And if you've changed employers seven times over your career, which is probably conservative at this point, honestly. Absolutely, it is. The likelihood of maybe accidentally leaving a couple of 401ks behind, passing away, and your beneficiaries now trying to figure this all out, it happens. We've seen people forget about piles of money, (laughs) as crazy as it sounds. But what happens if you forget about those piles of money? Again, you're required to take distributions. If you forgot about it, you're probably not going to take it. And then you're penalized and taxed when you do. And if you don't, your beneficiaries will be. 
Yeah, it's hard for them. But let's think, what if you want to do Roth conversions? You want to control the tax bigot right now. Oh, boy. If you forget about an IRA or if if you don't know about one of them, uh, it can really mess that whole thing up. You can be you can be called you can be caught in the cream in the coffee rule. Yeah, are we talking about the <laughs> pro rata here? Yeah, and and basically you just you just mess up all the value of doing Roth conversions. That um, can be a ginormous mistake, by the way. Yes, yeah, we've helped some people through it. It's it's hard. It's hard work. Um, but there's there's a lot. The benefit, an even simpler benefit, is just being able to see performance. Yeah, easily. Uh, it's it's a lot easier to see how your retirement accounts are doing when they're all in one spot. Well, I think another obvious is working this all into one living, breathing, working financial plan. Yeah, yeah. If, it, if you're if you're paying an advisor to plan for you and they're not managing all of your assets or or they don't see a lot of these assets, how in the world can you task them with managing these assets and the distributions off of these assets? The math doesn't work if you're not including everything. Mm-hmm. And right? I'm not necessarily saying to consolidate every single IRA. Sometimes there are good reasons to keep them apart. Like if you have separate rollover IRAs and you have a contributory IRA, that can be beneficial to keep those separate. Sure. Um, but to to your your point, I've I've run into people that have three four oh one Ks and three four oh three Bs and a pension and a four fifty seven and an IRA and an inherited IRA and it's that's yeah. a lot. So that's pretty scattered. Let's be honest here. You pass away. Do you think that your will and all of that is is has explicitly listed out all of these assets? Probably not. Do you think that your beneficiaries are going to be able to easily go about settling all of this stuff? Probably not. I've said it on the pad- podcast before. I'll say it again. If you're going to do someone a favor, do them a favor. <laughs> <laughs> Consolidation is really important. That That's a pretty obvious one. And I think that that's a big, one of the biggest reasons. But Jason, what's the biggest reason that you found for people moving their 401k? <laughs> well, tied with more investment options and more control uh, is just not keeping money with your ex-employer. <laughs> 64% of people that rolled from a 401k to an IRA cited avoiding leaving assets behind with former employer as a reason to move. So <laughs> I think if you got canned or you left, you probably didn't love it the most. They yeah. didn't, maybe they didn't pay you enough. You, Why, if you don't work there anymore, do you want to leave your money there? All your old bosses seeing maybe your values. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason you left your employer. Why would you leave your money behind? If And usually that's why we say a rule of thumb. If you leave your employer, take your, take your retirement account with you. Usually. Now, there are some reasons, Caleb, to keep the money there. There absolutely are. Uh, there are some cons to the just roll over your 401k because that's what you do yeah. uh, mentality, right? As a blanket statement, even though it's, I think it's pretty obvious that we're moving towards usually it's a good idea to roll yeah. over your 401k if you leave or if you're not there anymore. But yeah, there are exceptions to that rule. Well, let's think about some situations that you and I have come across with clients. And and, and when we talk about uh, conflicts of interest and things like that, look, we, we get paid to manage people's money, right? So mm-hmm. we want to manage money. Uh, but there are times when we've said, uh, hold on. You need to keep that money with your 401k. You need to not bring that here and pay me for good reasons. Yeah. Let's go through some of those. I'm going to start with the first one, and it's the age-related stuff. Absolutely. So what a lot of folks don't realize is that uh, the 401k or 403b, 457, whatever your your flavor may be, uh, there's typically in those employee-sponsored plans some more flexibility when it comes to withdrawals at certain ages. So I think it's pretty standard at age 55 
with your current employer and their employee-sponsored plan, no penalties for withdrawals. Whereas the rule of thumb generally from the IRS standpoint is 59 and a half, right? So let's say you retire at age 52 Mm -hmm. and you're thinking about rolling your 401k over into an IRA. That's great, right? But what if there's a possibility of needing to access some of these funds? Well, at 52 years old, in the uh, uh, example of rolling to an IRA, you'd have to wait seven and a half years before you can take penalty-free withdrawals. Right. right? But in the 401k, 403b, 457, whatever your flavor, that age is 55 years old, Mm -hmm. right? So maybe you've got a great pension and there's really no, uh, no real likelihood of having to access these funds. I have in the past said, let's keep X amount over here just in case, you know, Murphy's law kind of thing. Yeah. Um, If something goes wrong, we want to know at least you you go back and get these funds at age 55 without any penalties. The penalty is 10%. Okay. So if you're taking out a $10,000 withdrawal because you need a new furnace or something like that, 10% penalty on that, just because you're taking it out early, you know, that stings a little bit. And then the taxation (laughs) involved too. So 55 and a half or, or 55 years old with no penalty versus 59 and a half. Um, there's a reason to maybe leave and, and maybe not all of the 401k, but whatever you think you may need between now and then. What a lot of folks don't understand also is that for certain public employees, that age is 50. So we're looking at the early retirees in this example. Yeah. You retire early with a pension, probably. You might want to have some set aside or, or remaining in that plan in case something comes up in the meantime. So for someone who maybe the bulk of their assets are in qualified plans, retirement plans, that may be a reason. The last thing I'll say is if you are working later in life, the required minimum distribution age where Uncle Sam says you have to start taking money out of these accounts so you can start paying us taxes currently is at 72 years old. Well, we know from previous podcasts that people are working later than they used to. They're working into their 70s, some for necessity, some just to stay active. But one of the uh, caveats in a 401k is that if you're still working for that employer, you don't have to take required minimum distributions if you're still working there. That's that's a big deal for someone who's working to age 75 or 76, right? Yeah. And another con, Caleb, we kind of we kind of came up with talking earlier about Roth conversions. Mm-hmm. A con to rolling over is it may mess up Roth conversions. Yeah, it um, could mess it up big time. Uh, and and a lot of times, like I was saying, it could be a pro to leave it in your four hundred one k if your four hundred one k actually can aid in doing Roth conversions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can tell you what: if you are planning on doing Roth conversions with a contributory IRA. Rolling out your 401k or 457 into an IRA is going to add some complication and probably, definitely, <laughs> uh, invoke this pro rata rule where you will have to, you you will be taxed on, yeah. on all of it, which will negate the benefit of the Roth conversion. Basically, pro rata, meaning uh, whatever you're converting, we're looking at that as a portion of your, whether it's just the IRA that you're converting from or not, they're yeah. looking at your overall traditional IRA assets as a percentage right? Yeah. So, so so it'll make sense to like take money out of IRAs to do this. So you, if you want to convert just your one IRA that you've been putting money into. Yeah. So a portion or, of yeah. your traditional funds. And you've got this like, and you think it's fine because you have a 401k and a 457 that you also rolled into their separate rollover IRAs. You're just going to con- convert your contributory IRA. The IRS is going to look at 
all of your IRA money. So those two that you rolled over combined with the contributory one, and you're going to pay taxes on all of that. And only IRA funds. So that's where the mm-hmm. 401k, 403b, 457 kind of puts a fence up around those funds. So if you're actively um, doing Roth conversions as part of your financial plan, that's where, and I think you have a situation where you're looking at actually moving money back into a 401k plan before doing the Roth conversion to not screw up this pro rata. Yeah, we have, we have several of those actually here at Blue Jay that we're doing with good 401ks or we're just starting the 401k to do it. Um, it's an awesome idea, but it is definitely high level and really dangerous with yeah. taxes. It's important that you play you play with kid gloves here. It's a delicate situation. Don't do this at home, kids. <laughs> Don't try this at home. Work with a competent financial <laughs> advisor. You might be confused about this portion. We could do a whole podcast on this specifically. Absolutely. Easily. Um, but what it boils down to is, uh, yeah, work with a competent financial advisor because it sounds like shenanigans. That's exactly what it is. The way that the tax code is it's written. all these tax loopholes written for <laughs> super rich people. Right. And us trying to figure out how to exploit them for us and our clients. So that's a big one. If Roth conversions are a part of your financial plan, you just got to be really mindful of this pro rata rule. And that's where a good financial planner, a good advisor is going to tell you, hey, we might want to keep this money in the 401k. In fact, we might want to move money out of IRAs into the 401k so that we can accomplish this strategy without adverse tax consequences. Mm-hmm. Again, let's just keep that one surface level. There's a lot of... Uh, <laughs> I think a, we've already gone under the surface with it for a lot just of folks. Just barely, but. maybe. <laughs> let's let's talk about expenses in 401k, yeah, though, let's, Jason. Yeah, let's. They're, they're usually cheaper. Usually, usually, we're looking... Yeah. Usually, the company is, is paying for part of it. Right. And usually you have the economies of scale. You have a lot of members, so you get a, a lower rate for the administrative costs. So yes. usually they're cheaper. So depending on the size of the company that you work for, if you're working for a small fledgling clump, uh, company, you might have maybe 10 target date funds, something like that. You might be paying high expenses. Uh, I've seen 401ks out there that offer A shares. Uh, that's not a real cost-effective strategy. <laughs> no. But let's say you're working for a big corporate um, you know, company, a, a big conglomerate um, you're getting, like you said, that economy of scale, your overall costs are because the company is investing so much money. Uh, they're getting, it's like anything else. Yeah. Uh, when you're dealing with more money, you're going to get more cost savings. So there you're are times where a bulk discount. Exactly. You, there are times where the expenses in a 401k are almost certainly lower, uh, than in an IRA. Um, now, Cost is important. That's something we need to keep in mind definitely is cost everything, Jason. Depends on who you're talking to. (laughs) I don't think so. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I I think um, you might have low cost funds, but if the funds aren't very good because you've got 20 to choose from, then you got to look at that, that cost benefit analysis, right? You might pay a little bit more, but if you're getting more return, is it worth it? Well, that's, that's a decision that you've got to come to with your financial advisor. So expenses are one. Um, Jason, we're roughly 50-some minutes into this podcast. I want to get into this badly. Let's do it. Let's do it in (laughs) two and a half minutes. The next con that we want to talk about that I told Caleb is super boring and no one will care about, but there is a lot of value in it, (laughs) is net unrealized appreciation and... If And this is a, a con to rolling over from a 401k to an IRA. If you invest in company stock yeah. in your 401k, Caleb, 
who has recently passed his third EA exam. <laughs> Take it away. Just waiting for the background check, folks. The hardest test of all. <laughs> From a tax perspective, this might go way over people's heads here, but I can tell you from personal experience when it applies, it is a huge deal. Net unrealized appreciation or NUA, okay? Nobody says NUA. Do they? Like the people that say IRA? Tax folks say NUA. We didn't talk about people saying IRA. This is an IRA podcast. Oh, yeah. If you're confused about what we're talking about, this IRA... Maybe Ira makes sense. No, anyone that says Ira is not welcome to listen to this podcast. Now, to, now about if you Nua. say Ira, you can still call Caleb. <laughs> now, tell us about Nua, Caleb. Net unrealized appreciation. Okay, so think about uh, your four hundred one k. You're working for a company that you you love. You believe in the product. Uh, and, and let's say maybe your company gives you a discount on their company stock, their publicly traded company stock. Well, that's a great thing. I like a discount. Jason, do you like a discount? I love discounts. Okay. We all love discounts, right? So you buy the stock at a discounted rate on a biweekly basis when your paycheck comes out, right? And you're putting that money into your tax deferred account, your 401k. Okay, so the way that a 401k works in general is you don't pay taxes now. You pay later when you take the withdrawals. You pay later. So you may be paying less for company stock, which is always a great thing. We'll go back to our original rules of no more, no more than 10% of your net worth in any individual company. I don't care if it's the company you work for. I don't care if it's the company that you created, right? (laughs) Anyway, when you take money out of a 401k, that's taxed at ordinary income rates. So whatever your ordinary income is, when you take that money out in retirement, it may be 20%, 22%, whatever it happens to be. I don't know. Capital gains rates are usually uh, more favorable if you're making a pretty decent income. And I know a lot of our folks are taking money out of IRAs because they have to, not because they want to, and they're paying higher taxes on those because ordinary income tax rates are higher. Maybe they've got a great pension. Maybe they're being taxed on their social security. Maybe they got rental properties, whatever it might be, right? So net unrealized appreciation. This is an opportunity for folks who have company stock that has appreciated And they have not realized it yet. That's why it's net unrealized appreciation, okay? There's an opportunity here. If you roll this out to an IRA and you wait till required minimum distribution age and you take it out, you will be, no questions asked, taxed at ordinary income rates, which I believe will be higher than they are today. Don't you, Jason? Uh, No comment. No comment, he says. He's not going to comment on taxes. All right, well, I think capital gains tax rates for most will be lower than ordinary income rates when we get to that point. There's an opportunity to roll these company stock funds out into a brokerage account and pay. This is how it works. Ordinary income tax on the price of purchase, right? So what the company gave you essentially, but capital gains tax rates on the growth. Let's say you've worked for a company for 30 years and the stock has appreciated dramatically, wouldn't you rather... Jason, if your cap, if your uh, ordinary income tax rate is 22%, but the capital gains rate is 15, which would you rather pay? Less taxes. Less taxes. More good. Yeah. <laughs> Less taxes, more good. I love that. So eloquent. Uh, there's an opportunity to roll these funds out into a brokerage account and pay when you sell capital gains rates versus ordinary income rates. This is super... Super important because you you control when the taxes are, are are due, 
essentially, rather than waiting till required minimum distribution age. So I know a lot of advisors out there say, just roll your 401k, always. It's always a good idea to just roll it over. Uh, don't be over-concentrated in one stock. Just move it to me. We'll take care of RMDs whenever we get there. That's not always what's in your best benefit. I'm going to give you an example here, okay? This is uh, something on Investopedia, and I think they did a good job here. So let's say that uh, you bought company stock over the years, and it was $200,000, right? 35% income tax on $200,000 is 70%, okay? But let's say that stock grew to a million bucks, and you've got a gain there of $800,000, right? But capital gains tax rates are now 15%, okay, versus the 35% uh, income tax rate. So $70,000 by, by doing a move out to the brokerage account and realizing net unrealized appreciation, you might, might pay 35% income tax on that $200,000, which is $70,000. And on that 15% capital gains tax on the $800,000 in gains, that's $120,000 for a total tax bill of $190,000, okay? That sounds like a lot of money. We're in good shape, folks, right? But let's look at what that would uh, entail if we rolled it to an IRA, didn't deal with the NUA, the NUA, right? And we just paid paid straight 35% tax on that million dollars that has never been taxed before. Well, the math is pretty easy. That's $350,000. Jason, which would you rather pay? $190,000 or $350,000? Less tax is more good. <laughs> you heard it, folks. Less tax is more good. This is just basically one of those examples where you have to, if you're holding company stock, especially if it's a, a sizable amount, you have to look at your options because over the course of your career, that stock has probably appreciated. Otherwise, you made a bad investment. If it has, <laughs> there's other options. Um, so that could be a con to just rolling it out without thinking about it. Again, deal with a competent financial advisor, tax advisor, Maybe someone who does both. I don't know. Wink, wink. Jason, that's enough about NUA, but I had to get that in there. Why don't we distill it down for our listeners? We've talked about a lot of great things today. Yes, Caleb, today's distillates. Number one, if you are under 50 and don't have appreciated company stock in your 401k retirement plan, it's probably a good idea to roll over to an IRA. The pros usually outweigh the cons. I would agree. Number two, Making the decision to roll over a 401k is dependent on a whole lot of variables that usually aren't considered even by financial advisors. I know we went through that. Guys, there is so much going on with IRAs. This could just be an IRA podcast. There are a lot of tax rules. Really there are could. a lot of uh, rules that are things that are dependent on what your goals are and how you're going to do things like, are you going to retire early? Are you going to tap into retirement funds early? Are you going to tap into them later? Are they going to your your heirs. That kind of stuff usually isn't considered even by financial advisors. Most financial advisors, this kind of brings me into my call, of act, call to action. <laughs> so let's go into that. The call to action for today's episode is ask a really good financial advisor about rolling over your old 401k or 403b or 57. Make sure you know what their conflicts of interest are. Yeah. We are in this industry in the lies financial advisors tell. I think we talked about our conflicts of interest. Usually advisors are billing some way, either if it's commission or by a fee, flat fee on assets under management 
or revenue sharing. It's usually billed in relation to how much of your money they have under their management. Advisors want your 401k. They want your money. If your money is not with them, they would prefer that it be with them. (laughs) And, And that's true of us even too. So that is a conflict of interest that we have to mitigate. But Having a knowledgeable, competent, professional financial advisor that isn't afraid to talk about taxes yeah. is really important. Make sure that they disclose their con- conflicts of interest with you and get that out on the table. There are some that are hourly only. I know we do that sometimes with people when it makes sense. Very rarely. But having somebody that knows this stuff is really important. If you were rolling over a 401k seems really easy. And I know, I know I'm a Dave Ramsey fan. And he says, if you leave your job, take your 401k with you all the time. It's not true that that's the best thing all of the time. Right. Uh, But most of the time, like Dave in general, most of the time, it's fantastic advice. It's pretty simple. It's pretty basic. It just makes darn sense. Yeah. But there are some situations, folks, when we're dealing with the tax code, and that's what we're talking about with retirement accounts. That's mm-hmm. in the IRS's eyes and all of this, we're just looking at tax qualification on all, all these accounts. So when we're talking about involving taxes, it's never quite that easy, right? No, no. I wish it was. Uh, we've got to fix that. Maybe when we grow up, we can fix the system. Maybe when you run for president. <laughs> I, I think really good stuff, Jason. Excellent podcast from my my seat over here. Yes, and we talked a lot a lot about net unrealized appreciation. So I know you had a good time, but Caleb, great time. <laughs> What is happening in the speakeasy this week? Really good stuff. We've got some new folks in the speakeasy, and there might be a fight breaking out, actually. I doubt it. Uh, I'll explain that in just a second. But first, let's welcome some of our new uh, members here to the speakeasy. We've got John Zachary. All right. Yeah, John. He's a BGSU mascot. He is. Thanks, John. (laughs) Jeffrey Bennett. Amy Tolson. Thank you. Adam Fritz. Paula Stark. Ashley Nicole. And... Becca Roop, who wasted no time in taking a shot at the champ. If you come at the champ, you best not miss. <laughs> when you're number one, people are always gunning for you. Uh, they're gunning for that title belt, and that's exactly what Becca has done. She shouted out by name on the speakeasy. By name, Jason. One of our hashtag superfans, Cassie Verhoff. She writes, quite simply, coming for you, Cassie. Ominous. Now, that could be any Cassie, it, but it I think be. the speakeasy knows exactly who she's talking about. Speaking of Cassie, Caleb, I thought of a really good pun today, and I want to show it on, share it on the episode. Is that all right? I love it. Uh, yeah, good pun. Sure. Uh, those of you that listen to the Harvey Wallbanger episode will especially like this. <clears throat> Caleb, <laughs> what do you call it when a cow starts receiving her pension? Oh, this is a great pun, but it's... A mooitization. That's right. It's a mooitization. Oh, Cassie, that's for you. That was for you, Cassie. <laughs> you are a super fan. Uh, Caleb, I think that's been pretty good, but I, I that's think we enough gotta, for today. I think we got to call it a day. <laughs> Folks, thanks for having a drink with us this week. It's time to close out the tab. If you have a question or a topic you want addressed on the Old Fashioned Finance podcast, be sure to email us at speakeasy at oldfashionedfinance.com. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to share the show with someone you love or just someone who needs a little money muddling themselves. You can stay up to date with all of the latest action by following us on Facebook and Instagram. 
Old Fashioned Finance is brought to you by Blue Jay Financial Group. That's BlueJayFG.com and produced by Pottery Studios. We've been your hosts, Jason and Caleb. Cheers. 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 Three, two, one. Cheers. Blue Jay Financial Group, LLC, Blue Jay, is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Ohio. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The presence of this advertisement on this podcast shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by Blue Jay in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without first complying with jurisdiction requirements or pursuant to an applicable state exemption. All verbal and written content on this presentation is for information purposes only. Opinions expressed herein are solely those of Blue Jay, unless otherwise specifically cited. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by our firm as to other parties' informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation.